Hello friends, welcome back to Redrawing the Bath, and, and today I have the special opportunity to welcome once again to the show someone who has impacted my life, my faith, uh, my marriage, my worldview. Today I get to welcome to the show pastor, author, provocateur, Brian Zond. Brian, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, it's my pleasure, Chris. So I, I'd like to start just by asking you a little bit about your faith journey. Um, I, I would assume that a lot of people know who you are, the, the Led Zeppelin freak to the Jesus freak. <laughs> um, but I would, I would just love to hear that story once again for people that aren't familiar with you. Sure. Um, Jesus came crashing into my life when I was 16 years old. Um, and as you already alluded to, I basically went overnight from being the high school Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. Hmm. And this was during the Jesus movement of the 1970s. If people are aware of that spiritual sociological phenomenon of counterculture, young people turning to Jesus kind of as a response to the 60s counterculture movement. It was kind of a it wasn't, it wasn't a move towards conservatism. It was a move driven by the idea that the hippies got a lot right, but they needed a better Messiah than the Beatles. <laughs> and so <laughs> we found Jesus. And by the time I was 17, I was leading a coffeehouse ministry. You know, the Jesus movement was centered around music. And so this was a music venue that uh, we brought in artists from the Jesus music scene and, and then when we didn't have a, a music artist booked, I would speak, teach, preach, whatever. And so in, in effect, I was doing the work of a pastor by the time I was 17. And that became Word of Life Church. Catacombs just became the church that I pastored low these many years later. So I tell people I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult. <laughs> that's amazing which is crazy and it's not a good idea and it's not a pattern to follow but it is a true part of my story and so in one sense i've only done one thing in life and that is to help people follow jesus and i've done it in one city i've done it with one thing i mean it changed its name when we started meeting on sundays from the catacombs to word of life but it's still the same entity Hmm. Uh, but it's been a long journey, okay? So from when we officially became a church, when I was 22, November of 1981, that's been 38 years. I am 61 years old because someone's trying to do the math right now, and I'll just save you the effort. <laughs> um, and so so in one sense, I've done one thing, but it's all a journey. So yeah, things change over time. Uh, Jesus doesn't change. Uh, hmm. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but we better not be. <laughs> I mean, we have to stay on the journey. And so, you know, the Jesus movement is how I entered into the faith. That led into the charismatic movement, which I describe as good until it wasn't. <laughs> uh, that kind of led me into word of faith stuff, even religious rights stuff. Uh, and I, it, it, there was never really a conscious decision to go in that direction. It's just what happened. Uh, by, but by the time I was, well, certainly by the time I was 45, in 2004, I just reached a full-blown crisis, and the Christianity I knew seemed weak and thin. And I wasn't having a I wasn't having a crisis of faith in the sense that I was in any way doubting Jesus. I just reached the point where I knew that Jesus deserved a better Christianity 
than what I knew. Hmm. And so I, that led me on a quest, reading church fathers, beginning to reading, beginning to read serious theology, not pop theology, not consumerist Americanized theology, begin to really study theology seriously. Uh, and this is the water to wine journey that I talk about. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people have done that. People call it deconstruction if they want. I'm, I'm, I'm halfway through a new book with the title, What Can We Do When Everything's on Fire? And really, it's my book about how to navigate deconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I tell my own story in Water to Wine, but this is me really more speaking to the issue. And, but I'm only halfway through with it, so it'll be a while before it's out. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so, but, but I did, I mean, I found what I was looking for, you know, ask and you'll receive, knock, the door will be open, seek, you'll find. And I, I really did find this rich, vibrant Christianity, more in keeping with the historic witness of the church than the very thin consumerist Americanized version that I had, uh, more or less embodied, maybe inherited, picked up along the way, cobbled together, however you want to say it. I finally found something better, but it came with a cost. It came with the cost of people that had been with us at some point during the journey, not liking the new direction we were going, and we lost over a thousand people. And that was very painful. That wasn't just uh, a, a bump in the road. That was that was more like falling down a well or something. And uh, it was it was hard, but we made it. And uh, when I say we, I guess I mean the church, but I, I'm speaking very specifically of my wife, Perry, who was, you know, not only my wife, but, but my best friend. And we've just done life together. I mean, we met at the catacombs when we were teenagers, you know, so hmm. we've just done life together. And um, we've come through that, that transition. Really, it took us about 10 years from maybe 2004 to 2014 took us another couple of years to kind of heal. But today we're healthy and happy and excited to be Christians, trying to figure out what it means to pastor a church during COVID. But, you know, so anyway, that's that is a almost at the speed of light journey from November 1974 to the present. And now we're here. That's yeah, here we are. Wow. That was I, I don't think I've ever heard someone tell their story in in such a concise but very poignant way as you do in in the podcast interviews that you do it it always really amazes me that that you do tell your story in such a quick and uh and uh well encapsulated way um absolutely um so and you you've written a lot of books as you've gone on this journey from from penal substitutionary theory nationalism um, where so I'm curious though, where did your journey start? Where did it start? Well, I, as I alluded to, it just started with I just began to have a sense that the Christianity I knew was weak. It was thin. It was like in the words of Bilbo Baggins, it was it was butter spread over too much bread. It just wasn't rich. In the words of you too, I still hadn't found what I was looking for. And so I didn't really, initially I didn't know where to go. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to back up and I'll just start reading church fathers, which I'd never really done. Hmm. Uh, I began to read philosophy to help with my thinking, which I had done some early on, but you know, in a charismatic word of faith world, that's frowned upon. And so I'd kind of not 
kept that up. I returned to reading philosophy, reading church fathers. Um, but at some point I knew I, I needed, and I was just, just stunningly, embarrassingly ignorant of the good stuff. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the problem of not knowing what you don't know. <laughs> and I just didn't know where I could find good contemporary uh, musing, theology, conversation on the God revealed in Christ. And I prayed one day, this was in 2004. I said, God, show me what to read. Because I, I knew, I, I, you know, I was reading Church Father. That's great. That's a good foundation. But I, I needed to really get more current. And I said, God, show me what to read. And a few minutes later, my wife walked into the room. She had no idea what I'd prayed. She walked up to me and she just hands me a book. And she says, here, I think you should read this. <laughs> and it was, it was like Twilight Zone sort of thing. And it, and it gets stranger. She, has, she had not read this book. And it gets even stranger. Um, we don't know how this book showed up in our house. <laughs> I didn't buy it. She didn't buy it. But she found it in our house. I don't know how I got here to this day. And she looked, she just picked it up, looked at the cover, looked at the title, looked at the back of the book and thought, hmm, maybe Brian would like this. And she brought it to me and it, 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 it kicked open the door that led to everything else that followed. And the book was The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard. Hmm. That yeah. was my gateway drug into a world of substantive, historic, maybe sacramental, uh, patristic informed theology and praxis. And I went on, a, you know how people binge watch things on Netflix. I binge read Willard and N.T. Wright and Walter Brueggemann and Stanley Hauerwas and uh, theologians like this uh, almost obsessively, you know, hours a day for about two or three years, and it completely rewired my theological mind. And then, and then I began to write my own stuff, and that's a whole story about how that came about. But I began to write, and uh, when you are writing, especially writing theologically, one of the reasons you write is to discover what you believe, hmm. because we kind of we 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 sort of sometimes intuit our beliefs or we feel our beliefs or we think we might maybe believe this, that, or the other thing. But when you are actually having to write it, to construct sentences, to become very definite and concrete, that's where you really discover what you believe and may run into problems. And Mm. you've already alluded to the problem of penal substitutionary atonement theory, which is a modern, late modern, I say late modern. I mean, it has its seeds with Anselm a thousand years ago, so that's halfway back in the history of Christianity, but really begins to take hold and flourish with Calvin. So that's, you know, a quarter of the way back in the history of Christianity. And it's a, it's a, it's a theory. That's what it is. It's a theory that the purpose and the meaning of the cross is that God had to satisfy justice, and so God punished his son— that is, killed his son, brutally tortured his son through the hands of wicked men so that God could satisfy justice. And so that word penal is in it, punishment. That, that put it in the, in the most stark way, we would say, this is the theory that God killed Jesus so that he could gain the capital to forgive. And I just begin to see the problems with that. 
I mean, we can talk about this as much as you want. We can delve into it or whatever. But I can say this much. Uh, whatever else you may believe about it, you should at least know that it is not a historic doctrine. It is, it is just, it simply is not how the early church thought about the cross. They didn't think that way. Uh, yeah. And the Orthodox Church, I meaning the Eastern Orthodox Church, has to this day just says, no, that's Looney Tunes. That's, that's ridiculous. That is not how we talk about what happens at the cross. And so penal substitutionary atonement theory is problematic in a lot of ways in that it does violence to the Trinity, pits the Father against the Son. Um, And another problem with it is it tends to eclipse all other meanings of the cross. What Mm -hmm. happens at the cross, there's there's so much going on, there's so much depth and meaning, but with PSA, and that's not public service announcement, that's substitutionary atonement theory. With PSA theory, it tends to eclipse any other understanding or insight we gain from the cross. And so people sort of just had a, oh, yeah, okay, I know what the cross is. That's where God punished Jesus so he could forgive us. Hmm. The cross is not what God inflicts upon Jesus in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. I mean, where do we find God on Good Friday? Is he in Caiaphas seeking a scapegoat? Is he in Pilate uh, issuing an unjust sentence? No, God is revealed in Christ. So that when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, Jesus is not acting as an agent of change upon the Father because the Father is immutable. And John tells us repeatedly throughout his gospel that Jesus is only revealing the Father. He says, I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what the Father says. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus is not changing the Father. He's revealing the Father. Why does Jesus pray, Father, forgive them? Because that's who the Father is. And so uh, in at the cross, Christ absorbs um the the pinnacle of human sin. You could think of it this way, that that all human sin coalesces into a hideous singularity on Good Friday and is sinned violently into the body of the Son of God who absorbs it, forgives it, takes it down into death, leaves it there, and is raised by the Father on the third day and returns speaking the first word of the new world, peace be with you. Hmm. Yeah. So, so um, one of the problems with PSA is that is that God somehow then becomes penultimate. So you have the, you end up with this lurking in the background uh, that as if God were saying, "Well, look, guys, I'd like to forgive you, but I got to satisfy justice," which makes me say, "Well, who's in charge here? Uh, is is?" The eternal I am revealed as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Is this the true and living God, or is this a subordinate deity to which the eternal I am is accountable? And so somehow he's got to satisfy justice. No. Um, And first of all, this is a distinctly American understanding of justice in that justice Mm. is nothing more than retribution. No, justice is setting the world right. And then certainly that's part of what's happening at the cross. The cross is the place where the world is refounded 
around an axis of love expressed in forgiveness, pulling it away from the way that it was founded with the rise of civilization typified in Cain as an axis of power enforced by violence. So we could go on and on and on about what the cross is, but what it is not, it is not where God is acting violently toward his own son. That's not what the cross is about. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's so good, Brian. And shoot, I mean, with all that being said, I'm like, we could just wrap up here. That was great. Um, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, they'll say, they'll say things like, well, um, does Brian Zahn not believe that Jesus died for our sins? Of course I believe Jesus died for our sins, for our mm-hmm. sins and yeah. by our sins. But the point is, Jesus died for us, not for God. Hmm. He died yeah. for us, not for the Father. It's totally. we, it's sinful humanity and, and, and the structures of the principalities and powers that required that Jesus be put to death. Or as Rene Girard has observed, violence cannot tolerate the presence of one who owes it nothing. And so, yes, Jesus dies for and by our sins, and it becomes the gateway through which he enters into death, that he might destroy death and liberate those who are held captive by by death. But he's not dying for the Father. He's dying for us. Amen. (laughs) Okay, I just want to throw that in there, too. Yeah, no, and and I think those are the two biggest pushbacks when when you talk about PSA theory is that, well— where's justice and also well then you do you not believe that jesus died for our sin and i think it's a weird uh conundrum that that people who hold so fastly to that have created for themselves yeah in the sense that justice is is not appeased but it also is appeased and so you see and and i want to talk to you a little bit about nationalism as well before we dive in but I wonder if you've ever seen kind of the link between the people who believe that uh, justice was satisfied on the cross are the same people that are crying out for uh, international wars. They're yep. crying out yeah, there, for... There, there is a connection. Uh, yeah. Let, let me say this first prior to addressing that. One of the problems, and they are myriad, but one of the problems of penal substitutionary atonement theory is that it leaves the believer in a state of at least subtle anxiety, Hmm. saying, okay, does God really love me? Or was a quid pro quo worked out between the Father and the Son? Uh, So that what you end up with that theory is you end up Jesus saving you from God, that Hmm. God is the real problem, God is the threat, and that Jesus is saving you from God. And of course, I've, I've encountered many, many adherents of penal substitutionary atonement theory who say, that's exactly right. And I think, no, that's, a, that's abhorrent. Yeah. Jesus saves us from sin, Satan, death, hell, the grave. He does not save us from the Father. Jesus mm. reveals the Father as Savior. Uh, how are they related? Here's, here's how uh, militarism and nationalistic you know, warmongering and PSA are related, and they are related in the myth of redemptive violence. So with Mm. PSA, what you see is you see, oh, God is saving the world by acting violently upon his son. And so that we see, oh, good ends come about by violence, even killing. Uh, which which is a, a horribly distorted view of the cross, but that feeds very much into the American narrative. Mm. I think all empires, more or less, are infected with this kind of thinking, but it's very pronounced in the American experience. 
may be typified by the 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 myth of of American justice, typified by the by the uh, the cowboy, you know, mm. the guy in the white hat with his six shooters that that there isn't any injustice, there isn't any evil that cannot be rectified mm. uh, by a shootout on Main Street at high noon. And yeah. the good guy with the gun prevails over the bad guy with the gun. And Americans are deeply formed in that myth. And it's a lie. Uh, all that violence does is beget more violence. Uh, Jesus doesn't save us by acting violently. Jesus saves us by enduring our violence and forgiving it all, being raised on the third day and inviting us into a new world, a world of love, a world of forgiveness, a world of grace, a world of mercy. Um, so I, I think at the heart of it is this dark fascination with violence. Mm. And this this is a story the Bible tells. Let's think about it this way. Um, in, in its in its epic scope in the in the story of Genesis, it's more or less this story that's being told. And and, and you're going to have to bear with me a little bit here because I'm going to ask you to just go along for a ride for a second here. Oh, totally. That's but, what I'm here for. <laughs> um, so 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 in the beginning, God creates heaven and earth, and He calls it good, very very good. And he forms Adam, humankind, from the Adama, the soil, and and breathes into the nostrils of Adam the, the, the breath of life. And humankind becomes a living soul, a living being. And you have you have a man called Adam, humankind, and a woman called Eve, life, giver of life, life of all. And they have two children. Well, first of all, something goes wrong. Something goes wrong. Something goes wrong, and they lose their place in paradise, and they move east of Eden. Uh, then they have two children, Cain and Abel. Cain is a farmer, and this is, you know, this is as humans begin to harness agriculture, that's when more sophisticated civilizations are able to develop. You have the division of labor, and, and uh, you have the, 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 the first emerging great city-states in Mesopotamia. Uh, Abel is a... Is a keeper of sheep. He's a herdsman. This is this maybe speaks to our nomadic uh, hunter-gatherer background. And uh, anthropologists will tell you that there was tremendous tension uh, as civilization begins to emerge between the, uh, between the settled agriculturalists, farmers, and the, uh, the herdsmen, more nomadic, because uh, it, with with settled agriculture, you begin to have the concept of owning land, hmm. and if if land can be owned, then it can also be fought over and defended or stolen and all of that sort of thing. And this is even mentioned in Genesis when the Hebrews come to Egypt for the first time. Joseph warns his family, says, "You guys might not might not want to mention that you're shepherds because shepherds are odious to the Egyptians." Well, anyway, in the story of Cain and Abel, there's a there's a there's friction, there's rivalry, uh, and and God warns Cain. He says something horrible, some kind of terrible sin is lurking at your door. You need to overcome it, but he doesn't. And he rises up in a field because that's what the dispute is over: who owns the land? And he kills his brother. And he's already lied to himself. You know, he's already said, "Well, he's not. He's my brother, but really, he's other." 
He's not really my brother. He's other. He's enemy. And he kills his brother and he hides the body. And God comes and says, where is your brother? And he says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Like, you know, he's the keeper of those stinky sheep of his. I hope you know the answer to that by now. Yeah. Um, well, God reveals to Cain that he indeed knows what he has done. A mark is placed upon Cain, a mark of mercy, right? So that um, so that Cain will not be punished by others that would seek revenge on behalf of Abel. And he moves east of Eden and builds a city. And this is the first city mentioned in the Bible. What is the Bible trying to teach us here? It's trying to teach us where civilization comes from. It comes from the rise of people who view others as not brothers, but as enemy, lie to themselves, lie to God, hide the bodies. And that becomes the pattern that gets repeated throughout history of how we build our civilizations. And then you get seven, I think it's seven, uh, generations from Adam. Then you arrive at this character named Lamech in the book of Genesis who says this. He, he says, uh, I have slain a man for wounding me. I have killed a young man for striking me. If Abel's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is 70 times sevenfold. This is, by the way, the first 70 times seven that's in the Bible. Everybody's familiar with the 70 times seven call of Jesus to forgiveness, but it's an echo of this dark 70 times seven that first appears in Genesis where you're seeing now that violence is becoming exponential. And so Lemmick says, look, you know, you, you, you even, you just look at me wrong and I'm going to be violent with you. If you strike me, I'll kill you. And it's then within two generations that you have the, the, the days of Noah in which only one sin is specifically mentioned. We, we imagine a lot of other lurid sins, but they're not mentioned. The only sin that is mentioned and it's mentioned twice is violence. Now, you're going to have to kind of go with me. This will be a stretch for some people. But as the story is told, okay, I'm just telling you, as the story is told, God sees the violence. That's the only sentence mentioned. He regrets the whole project of creating the world and humanity. And God sets to intervene in the problem of violence. How? By drowning everybody but eight people. So as the story is told, uh, God's solution to violence is a violent solution. And guess what? It doesn't work because yeah. they're right back at it. And that's when the real it becomes kind of an, an aborted project of salvation. And now the real project begins with Abraham. And it, it's a long story, right? It's a long journey from Abraham to Jesus. But that's yeah. the big story the Bible is telling. And what was Abraham looking for, we're told? He was looking for a city whose builder in an architect is God. In other words, he's looking, is, is it possible for human society to be arranged in some way other than the Cain model of building it upon violence, killing our enemies? And he didn't ever find that city in his lifetime, but he saw it from a distance and welcomed it. Jesus said he saw me. That's what, that's what he was rejoicing in. He saw what I am doing and it's Jesus Christ who on the cross refounds the world. And in Christ, we discover a God who would in fact, I mean, Jesus is the only perfect revelation of God. In Jesus Christ, we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. But we have to be fully persuaded of that or we'll continue to follow the way of the Satan, the way of the Cain, the, the, the Cain model of, oh, let's, here, here's evil. Look, what can we do? Let's drop a bomb on it. And yeah. we think that somehow we're going to solve the problem of 
of evil through violence. That is the myth, that is the satanic lie of violence that the cross provides the alternative to. But mm. both ESA and militant religious nationalism are both rooted in the myth of redemptive violence. Yeah. Wow. That That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, a lot. I, I, yeah, there's a lot to no, think about. Not in a bad way. Just to just to think through that. Of I mean, it's it's almost over. It is overwhelming. Um, in the sense that even as you were talking, I was thinking about retributive violence and uh, and just like just violence, just war, and what you brought up about the cowboy um, being kind of the American embodiment of that. And simultaneously in history, you have the manifest destiny going on. Yeah, and so it it it, it just makes me wonder, connecting those two things. Of it's interesting because the same people who are like we should turn Iraq into a parking lot mm-hmm. are the ones that are complaining about people going out and protesting uh, murders of our African American brothers and sisters. And so I'm wondering if part of that has to do with the idea of manifest destiny, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, another myth that um, dominates the mental framework of much of American Christianity is the idea that America is a kind of new Israel. Now, I don't mean they actually, they don't actually say that. They won't, they're not trying to displace the modern nation state of Israel, but that's the framework of thinking about it. They're thinking we're kind of like the Israelites and we, and America's kind of like a new promised land. And this has kind of been given to us and promised to us like God promised the promised land to the seed of Abraham. And, and then it gets even darker. They, they don't want to say it there, but this has been the history of it. Uh, and the, the original inhabitants were kind of like the Canaanites who need to be dispossessed. And so that lurks and all of that. And this, this, in, this, of course, Chris, is the problem of empire. And I want to maybe spend a moment and try to unpack that, because when I say empire, I'm not at all going to assume that all of our listeners know what I mean by that or is meant by that. Yeah. Uh, yes, please. Empires are rich, powerful nations who believe they have a divine right and a manifest destiny to shape history and to rule other nations. Um, not all countries are empires. Most aren't. Uh, in the scriptures, we discover that God celebrates the diversity and the ethnicities and the languages and the cultures of the various nations of the world. What God is opposed to is empire, rich, powerful nations that believe they have a divine right to rule other nations, a manifest destiny to shape history according to their agenda, because they they, post, they, they posit themselves as a rival to the sovereignty of God. For in fact, what empires claim for themselves is the very thing that the Father has promised to the Son. It's Jesus who has a divine right to rule the nations. It's Jesus who has a manifest destiny to shape history. So an an empire critique is not some obscure theme in the Bible. It is a Mm. prominent theme in the Bible that runs quite literally from Genesis to Revelation. But if you've grown up in in an empire of civil religion, then you've learned, without even knowing you learned it, how to screen it out. But it's mm. all 
through the Bible. It's in Genesis. It's very pronounced in Exodus. It shows up a lot in the prophets. It's in the Gospels. It's in Paul's writings, and it's most pronounced in the book of Revelation, which is primarily a prophetic critique of the Roman Empire. And it, it, it shows the, it, it presents an eschatological, uh, highly symbolic vision of how the lamb and a little slaughtered lamb at that prevails over the mighty beast of the Roman Empire. And so the Roman Empire may not be here anymore, but all of its heirs and descendants are. I mean, I mean, it gets passed on. I mean, the fall of the Roman Empire isn't the end of empire. You just get, you get, you, you have the Byzantine Empire, and you have the Spanish Empire, and you have the, uh, the Russian Empire, and you have the British Empire, and now we're living in the days of the American Empire. Um, so America is, America is, is such a large player in the world that it's not one thing, it's four things. America is a nation, a culture, an empire, and a religion. As a, as a nation and a culture, America is a mixed bag, but there's plenty to celebrate. There's plenty yeah. that's admirable. There's plenty to be legitimately proud of. I mean, I've traveled the world. I've been in, I don't know, 50-some countries. And uh, I can tell you there is a sense in which much of the world admires American culture. I don't know if it's always good, but, but a lot of it's good. The, yeah. the entrepreneurial spirit, the, the idea of innovation. The idea of, well, let's do something that's never been done before and let's do it in a big way. That, that's a very distinctly American thing that people admire. As an empire, as I've already stated, America becomes a rival to the sovereignty of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as a religion, it's, well, of course, it's a heresy. It's idolatrous. And yeah. I, know, I, don't know, I don't know who listens <laughs> to this podcast. I don't know if people are, are you know... <laughs> slamming their computer shut or however they're listening to this, pulling the earbuds out of their ears, even as I speak when I say American is a religion. But is it really in dispute? I mean, it's, it's a religion complete with religious myth, with religious symbols, with sacred texts, with sacred ground, with sacred creeds, with liturgical gestures that dare not be defied. Um, <laughs> you know, with, with, with sacred... Uh, holy days and, and holy ground and on and on it goes. I mean, for example, in the, uh, in the uh, rotunda of the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., if you look up, what you see is the apotheosis of Washington. That's the name of the painting you see. Hmm. And apotheosis is Greek to deify. And what you see is George Washington having ascended to heaven, surrounded by gods and goddesses, becoming a god. I mean, there's a place where they kind of overplayed their hand yeah. <laughs> and, just, and just made it plain that America, Americanism is, in fact, a religion. Now, it borrows so heavily from Christian iconography and, and, and language that people confuse the two. And this is the big problem we have today is that so much of the American church, especially the American evangelical church, has tried to conflate the American empire and the kingdom of Christ into more or less a single entity, or at least they have a very difficult time of untangling that. As I say in my book, Postcards from Babylon, we are tangled up in red, white, and blue. Hmm. And how do you get free from that? Well, for one thing, you have to see the kingdom of Christ. You have to see it now. 
but that requires you to rethink everything. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus. He says, unless you're born again, unless you are willing to start over and rethink everything, you'll never even be able to see the kingdom of God, even though it's here. Hmm. And so Jesus is, I mean, the most seminal confession of the Christian faith is that Jesus is Lord. Lord is not primarily a religious term. I mean, there's some of that involved in it, but it's a counter-imperial claim. I mean, in the first century, it was Caesar who was Lord. But Christian says, no, Jesus is Lord. And so Jesus is not Lord-elect. He's not Lord-going-to-be. He's not Lord-off in heaven, and someday he'll come back and be Lord. In the meantime, we'll just run the show. Thank you very much. No, Jesus says prior to his ascension, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, make disciples, baptize them, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. And guess what? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we have to understand that that governments are not a a stopgap between the ascension and the parousia. Uh, governments are called, along with every other person, principality, and entity, to bow their knee and confess that Jesus is Lord and begin to obey Christ here and now. And Christians are the ones who are to embody that in the present moment. The Mm -hmm. church is the world as believing in Christ. And we, who are the baptized, are to live our lives in such a way that it demonstrates that, in fact, Jesus is Lord right now. But religious nationalism... Uh, imagine some sort of division of labor. They imagine that Jesus is absent, that he's far off, that he's not here. And in the meantime, it's up to governments to bring about righteousness. And they do that largely through the sword. And, uh, and then we get seduced into following that kind of thinking. And uh, people under the under the spell of religious nationalism, can do some very terrible things, as evidenced mm. in 1930s Germany, of which similar types of ethos are already present in the America of 2020. And I think it's yeah. a desperate time for, for American Christians to ring a bell and, cause pe- and call people to return to fidelity to Christ alone. Mm. Yeah, it, it- it's interesting you bring up 1930s Germany and and you see kind of the correlations uh, and and one of the big things that came with the religious conservatism of the third reich was an ethnocentricity um, yeah. and and I'm interested especially in in these current moments where for people that are listening there are protests going on um there's rioting there's looting there's uh, but it's interesting that as we've talked about before, these people who claim Jesus is Lord aren't the ones crying out for justice. Um, and there's kind of an ethnocentricity to the the worldview. And so I'm interested to hear what you would say as to where do you think that that comes into the picture? Well, America, I would describe its original sin as racism hmm. with two primary manifestations slave labor, and stolen land. Um, the sin of racism, that is that, that there is a white superiority, that God is working primarily through white Europeans, and they come to this land, and they now have a right to steal the land. And well, let me just tell the story a little more the way it really is. Um, hmm. 
colonists arrive. They're having a hard go of it. Um, the second wave of colonists there at near Mystic in Connecticut had run out of farmable land and they they weren't sure what to do. And so what they ended up doing was they said, well, um, the neighboring Pequod tribe has plenty of cultivated land. Uh, we could take that. But there was some hesitancy on the part of the of these English colonists because, you know, that would involve killing and stealing. And so they asked Captain Mason about it, and he referred the matter to their chaplain, Reverend Stone. He said, well, I'll spend a night in prayer. And the next morning he comes back and says, guess what? God has given us clear title to the land. We are, we are now free, as the Israelites were, to take the land of the Canaanites. See how they've cast themselves now as they're the new Israel and that these non-white people, the indigenous inhabitants, the Pequod tribe, are the, uh, are the uh, Canaanites. And so they, they, uh, they staged an unprovoked raid upon the Pequod tribe, killed about 700 people, mostly women and children, and stole their land. And that became the paradigm. That became the template. That became the pattern that was followed. Uh, and, and the reason you don't hear as much you know, we're grappling with, with the legacy of slavery, and I'll get back to slavery in a moment. But we're grappling with that. We hardly ever talk about the fact that we live on stolen land. Yeah. And there was a there was a whole project of ethnic cleansing that went from one ocean to another. You know, a, a project of ethnic cleansing throughout the North American continent. And the reason we don't talk about it is twofold. One, it was so successful that we've almost erased the memory of it. Hmm. Secondly, people can, now whether this is true or not, but people can imagine America as a continental-sized empire had there never been slave labor. They cannot imagine America as it is, as a continental-sized empire, had there not been stolen land. And so that creates such a conundrum such cognitive dissonance, they can't even seem to face it, so they just simply don't even want to think about it. One of the reasons slave labor began 401 years ago is that originally they tried to enslave the indigenous peoples, the tribal nations of the Americas, but since they were indigenous people, they would simply leave. I mean, they would just simply escape, and so they found it necessary to bring slaves from Africa who were not indigenous to the land, didn't know how to live here, didn't have connections and all of that. And that's African slavery began because the slavery of the native inhabitants didn't work. And so instead of enslaving the native inhabitants who they weren't able to do, they weren't able to do that. Uh, the project was mostly to displace and kill them. Now um, that's the history. And, and, it is racist because that's how it's justified. I mean, what is the difference? I mean, well, see, the, the European colonists are white, uh, but the African slaves and the indigenous tribes are people of color. And so that becomes the marker, that becomes the distinguishing mark. And we like maybe at times, especially the white community, to sort of pretend that somehow that all got dealt with by about 1964 and the civil rights 
legislation and Dr. Martin Luther King, et cetera. Uh, but that hasn't been the case. That, that demon, that principality still lurks among us. We've tried to keep it hidden, but I'm saying in 2020, we got 2020 vision. And if we want to see it, we can see it. Hmm. Uh, but then you'll have, you, you know, you hear this rebuttal. You say, well, you know, my, my, uh, my ancestors didn't enslave and they didn't rape, murder and pillage, you know, Indian tribes. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. That's not the point. The point is, as a, as a, as a white person in America, you have an inherited, you have inherited a position of privilege that was handed to you through centuries of injustice. So it doesn't matter whether you trace your bloodline to a slave owner or not. Just the fact of the matter is, the privilege you enjoy today has been built upon a systemic foundation, a foundation of systemic racism. So it does it doesn't matter whether you know. I mean, I could I could if I wanted to play that game, I could say the Zons from Switzerland didn't even arrive in the United States until the 20th century. Does that exempt me? No, because I'm already arriving in a place that privileges people like me through centuries of injustice. And so I am implicit, whether I want to acknowledge it or not. I'm implicated in systems of sin, whether I want to acknowledge it or not. But I need to acknowledge it or else I'm lying to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is at work in my life as the spirit of advocacy. The unholy spirit is the spirit of accusation. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of advocacy. And as the Holy Spirit is work in my life, it teaches me to recognize the poor, the immigrant, the imprisoned, the, the, the sick, the infirm, the indigent, as Christ in the guise of the poor and the imprisoned and the stranger and the sick. And, and so I, I, if the Holy Spirit is at work in my life, then I, am, then I am seeking to do unto others as I would have them do unto me. But in order to do that, I have to be contemplative enough to imagine what it would be like if I were a Native American or if I were an African American or if I were a, a Mexican immigrant, an undocumented worker here. How do I want people to treat me? Well, Christ commands us to treat the people, those people, the way we would want to be treated. You know, I don't want a man on my neck, kneeling on my neck when I can't breathe. I, I, don't, I don't want my land stolen. I don't want my life to be in peril just because I got pulled over and I belong to a different color than the officer. And so because I don't want that to happen to me, then I have to be, I can't say, well, I've never, I've never done anything like that. No, you, you live in a system that privileges you uh, as you are. And now you have to say, I am going to work to bring justice to those to whom it has been denied. Mm. And I, I think anyone that rebels against that I'm going to say it very bluntly, is rebelling against the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Yeah, amen. Uh, Brian, so obviously the, the show is, is a lot about faith and practicality. It, it's we, we believe these things, our beliefs change, our worldviews change, our perspectives change. But so then now what do we do? So, so what, what do we do? What, what do I do? What does the and also, what should the the all lives matter, blue lives matter, conservative evangelical Christian do? We need to be part 
of communities who are embodying the practices that Jesus commanded us in intentional, deliberate ways. The colloquial term for that community is the church. Of course, we know the church can be bastions of racism and injustice. So we need to find churches who are consciously, deliberately, intentionally opposing racism, seeking to become diverse, seeking to uh, speak up for those that are most uh, marginalized and, and systematically placed in structures of injustice, and then work together as a community to be an expression of the kingdom of Christ here and now. I, I don't know how to do this apart from the church, Chris. I mean, that's my that's that's everything to me. I, I believe in the church because I believe in Jesus. And sometimes I think people get the idea because, you know, the church is because it's made of sinners uh, and and we can find if we want. It's not hard at all to find, you know, the egregious sins of the church, whether we're talking about inquisitions or crusades or systemic racism, etc. But still, it is the program that Christ is working through, because in the end, Jesus says, it's my church. Upon this mm-hmm. confession that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So um, with what we do at Word of Life Church, we're deliberate about engaging with our community, trying to bring justice. I mean, we have a social justice director position on staff in our church, uh, a woman mm-hmm. who grew up in our church, Megan Taylor. And so, um, I mean... The, the exact nuts and bolts of what you do is going to vary from place to place and, and from locality to locality. But the first step, I think, is to find yourself a church that is being intentional about that, that, that does say, we see the problem and we want to, in the name of Jesus, be part of the answer. And again, I'm speaking a little bit brash here, but I don't know if if, if the church you're a part of seems to have no interest in that or is even actively resistant to it or trying to pretend there's not a problem. Why can't we just all get along? Um, I don't know. Maybe it's time to find something else. And I'm, I'm not, <laughs> as a pastor, I'm not one to counsel that too. You know, I certainly don't do that recklessly. Yeah. But I just think at this point, it's very hard to be claimed. It's very difficult to claim to be filled with the Holy Spirit and not have deep pangs of concern for African Americans and Native Americans and the injustice they continue, not just historically, but up to the present moment, continue to suffer. And so if you say, no, I don't, I don't think there's a problem at all. I think this is all just blown out of proportion. I think you might as well just put a sign around your neck that says, I am not filled with the Holy Spirit and I don't want to be. Mm, <laughs> and yeah. so it's a problem. Yeah, it's a it's a serious problem. Gosh, well, well, for the sake of time, I I, I guess I just have two more questions for you. Okay. Um, not necessarily related to that, but you are working on a documentary. Um, but with that being said, what what's next for you? Uh, well, what's next is I I want to try to finish this book. What can we do when everything is on fire? Uh, that's I'm going to insist that's going to be the title. Publishers usually, I, I concede the subtitle to them, so who knows what they'll come up with. But if I were putting the subtitle, it might be something like uh, faith in a secular age or, or faith in an age of unbelief. I want to help people who have, 
who are seeing the problems of a fundamentalist informed faith find something better other than just completely abandoning the Christian faith. And so um, seven chapters completed. It'll probably have 12 chapters. I want to get that done. And I continue to pastor the church. I used to travel and speak a lot <laughs> up until March. Maybe that'll maybe that'll come back again. And yeah, there is a there is a documentary that's being made. I'm not making it. And I don't mm-hmm. it wasn't my idea. I don't have any stake in it, financial or otherwise, but I was contacted. Oh my goodness, it would have been more than a year ago, I suppose, by now, by some documentary filmmakers who wanted to work on a project with postcards from Babylon. They wanted to address the problems of religious nationalism. And I said, sure, you can do that. I gave them permission. They even flew over while Perry and I were walking our our third Camino, the Camino de Santiago. It's a 500-mile pilgrimage walk from San Jean-Pierre de Port-France to Santiago de Compostela, Spain. And uh, they walked with us for four days and interviewed us and talked with us along the way. And um, a lot of other people, I know Shane Claiborne is in this film. I think Walter Brueggemann is in this film. I don't know who else. Again, I'm not, I'm not really privy to all of that. I just know that I'm in it and it's somehow at least loosely based upon my book, Postcards from Babylon, and that will be the title of the of the film. And I think their their goal is to have it out by September. So, Wow. I'll look forward to seeing it. <laughs> yeah, me Although, too. Yourself, I mean, I'm the kind of person that's seen myself in a documentary on film is always a little bit cringeworthy. <laughs> you know, I've <laughs> seen myself, but whatever. Oh, it'll it'll be great. And I guess, lastly, where where can people find you and and the work that you're doing? Well, you know, if you can spell my name. Brian with an I, Zahn, Z-A-H-N-D. You just Google that. I'm the only one. <laughs> and you'll find my blog site. I'm active on I'm active on Twitter, Instagram. I am active on Facebook in the sense that I have a page and I see the comments when I want to. <laughs> but but I don't look at them too much. And I don't I don't see anybody else's feed. I just it's just it's just another place for me to place some of my thoughts and some of my writing and some of my work. And I pastor Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, and you can find our website. But if you just Google Brian's on, you'll find the portals that lead to all that sort of stuff. Awesome. Well, Brian, I, I, this, the show's about Christian practice and, and Christian disciplines. And, and one of the disciplines, especially in this current moment, both politically and religiously, I think that's really lacking is is the practice of encouragement. Um, and so I just really want to encourage you as as a brother, as, as someone who's taught me a lot. Um, your work has, in a lot of ways, saved my faith. In a lot mm. of ways, it's, it's reinvigorated my faith. Um, it, it's funny, you mentioned that, that Dallas Willard was the first book that kind of triggered, or Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard was the first thing that really triggered all of it. And for it, the walk was very similar for me of that was the book. And then I read uh, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God mm. in a season um, for for me and my wife that was very dark and very uh, lonely and hurtful. And mm. we were both at a place where it was like, uh, I love Jesus, but man, I don't want this. And so having having people like you uh, in this world are helping so many people that including myself, including my wife, 
who have struggled to maintain our faith and are now in a much healthier place than even uh, we were before the the spiritual traumas happened. And so I just want to say thank you. And I want to encourage you, please. I know you're going to, but keep doing what you're doing. Well, I appreciate that. That is, in fact, very encouraging. That's that's the thing that more than any other I want to hear. And that's and, and the book I'm writing now is maybe the most, in, I mean, I, I do hear from people that reading maybe Water to Wine or, or Sinners in the Hands of Loving God helps save their faith. Um, I, I don't know that that was the intent of those books, but I hear it a mm-hmm. lot. The book I'm writing now is it kind of, that is the intention. I really am maybe moving more directly into, I, I understand that people's faith is under threat, under siege. Uh, people mm. are going through deconstruction. Sometimes, you know, you can deconstruct until there's nothing left. Yeah. And so I want to help those people. So that's what I'm working on right now. Heck yeah. Well, I, I know I reached out to you originally to talk about your prayer school. And so I'll, I'll have to have you on again to talk yeah, about sure. that. But until then, that's that's you. the practice that I teach. That If you want to talk yeah. about practices, that's the practice. Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd love to. I, I, I've been meaning to come out to do it for the last two years, but it just hasn't worked out. But hopefully in the future, I'll be there. Gonna have one. It looks like, you know, at this point, we're still planning on having one here in St. Joseph in September. I don't remember the exact dates, but. Okay. I'll, I'll try to see if I can do that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, Chris.